Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. One week before Easter, Jesus, on Palm Sunday, arrives into the city of Jerusalem, and it's like a party. It's like people are freaking out, and it's this adoration uh, kind of praise that awaits Jesus as he enters the city of Jerusalem. And it's remarkable what changes that week when the people in the mood of the city see that, wait, he's not, he's not the king. We were expecting the overthrow of Jerusalem and ultimately the Roman Empire. This is, that's not what's happening. And the whole spirit and tone changes during Holy Week to the point where the very people who praised him Entering the city on Palm Sunday, end up yelling "Crucify!" Um, going into Good Friday, and something remarkable happens the day before Palm Sunday. It's sometimes called Lazarus Saturday. Throughout church history, some will refer to what was yesterday on our calendar as Lazarus Saturday, and it's a phenomenal story that sometimes doesn't get the attention or the focus that I believe it should because it sort of precedes the events of Easter. It's sort of like, ah, just before Easter starts, just before Palm Sunday. So let's hurry up and read through the story of Lazarus, and then we'll get to Palm Sunday. And I believe God very intentionally placed this story as the first bookend of Holy Week. And so let's just jump into this story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. If you looked at the map of Jerusalem, just a couple miles to the east of Jerusalem is is Bethany, this little town. We would call it uh, a a suburb today. Um, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, is the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. These are very, very close friends. Some have said that John... um, The disciple was Jesus' closest friend, and others have argued that Lazarus was Jesus' closest friend. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now here we go into one of the most, this was one of the most confusing places in all of Scripture for me. Early in my faith, whenever this was read during Easter season or maybe occasionally throughout the year or my pastor would refer to this story, I just remember for years being so confused when I would read this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, this emphasis of loving means deep, deep love, deep friendship. Uh, John continues to tell us how much love Jesus had for this family. So, loving them so much, this is the so that's just so confusing. Founding, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What you and I think we're going to read in the so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick was, uh, was that he told the disciples, hurry, grab your things, we're going to race to Lazarus. But he stayed where he was two more days. And I want to just ask the question where I have journaled about this now and just I've gone on walks to pray and talk about this 
In the last four or five years, when I let this story, before the events of Easter week, when I let this story kind of get into me, into my mind and into my heart, this day before the events of Easter really begin, so we've been taught on the calendar, little, little do many know that Easter has actually begun with this story. I will process with God just walking like... Why wait? You ever feel like God has kept you waiting? He's just not showing up? It's like this is the Jesus who we've heard so much about in the remarkable stories, story after story, miracle after miracle. At this point, Jesus can't go to a town in Judea or anywhere near the Sea of Galilee, all the way up to Capernaum. He can't go anywhere without being mobbed by hundreds and thousands of people because of what they've learned and what they've seen him do. He teaches with an authority and a love like no one has ever experienced, and the apostles have trouble writing about it. It's so profound. It's so otherworldly the way he teaches and talks with love. But then he performs these signs, and John the apostle writes writes his gospel account around the seven signs that prove that Jesus was actually God here in the flesh. This story of Lazarus being the seventh. We hear and we see the remarkable. And this is why we follow Jesus. This is why he compels us. And then you wake up on a Tuesday morning or you have that unexpected meeting with your boss. Or recession seems to kind of take hold in your own home. Or the relationship that you thought would never break apart or have... This is the person that you love. Now there's this, this tension and you can't explain it. And you find yourself looking up in the sky wondering, I've been waiting. Are you hearing me? Do you see? The one you love is sick. If you've ever struggled with this, if you've ever struggled with, I believe, but wait a minute, he doesn't seem to be showing up. Jesus compels me to love and trust, but why isn't he answering me? If you've ever struggled with that, that experience, that, that crisis of faith in your spirit, this story is for you and for me. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there in Judea, specifically in Jerusalem, um, tried to stone you. And yet you were going back? What no one has figured out yet here, and, and how could they? We have the advantage of hindsight and knowing, knowing the story, is that as Jesus begins to move toward Bethany, toward his sick friend Lazarus, he has begun the journey towards the cross. He's moving into dangerous geographic territory for him. Just a couple miles from Jerusalem is Bethany. And this is a dangerous place for him. And the disciples do not understand what's about to happen in the next seven or eight days. Of course not. They, all they can think of is, Jesus, this could cost you your life. Going back into that that area of threat, that sounds dangerous. You want to go back? 
What no one can possibly fathom yet is that seven days before Jesus begins this journey towards Bethany, but really toward the cross, is that resurrection... Now hear this. We understand. We've grown up in America. Whether you grew up in the church or not, you get it. You understand. Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We see the crucifix hanging in churches. But then on the third day, we, we understand this as a society. These people have no concept of resurrection. What they don't understand is that as Jesus is moving toward Lazarus, which is really the gateway towards Jerusalem and toward his own death, is that Jesus is about to introduce something brand new. He's about to introduce resurrection into the hurt, the lost, the loneliness, the worries and anxieties of planet Earth. This concept that has never been in anyone's imagination is what Jesus is beginning, using the story of Lazarus, to introduce to us. Planet Earth is about to be shown some new, radically different paradigm. Jesus told them plainly to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And here's, here's another strange, bizarre statement. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Does this sound like Jesus? You know, you read like pages, like, wow, I love the heart of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a church, or maybe you were familiar with a church, or you had that uncle or where, where God was the angry God, the yelling, angry God who's always always watching for any little miscue or mistake. But when you actually read the story of Jesus, you're just sucked in. He's just so remarkably beautiful. And then randomly, it seems that he, he does something out of character. And that used to really, I, I, you know, I, I would sort of write that up to one of these inexplicable random moments. I want to get back to the loving Jesus, not the confusing Jesus. And I just want to commit to you, just from my own personal experience, when you stick to the words of God and you say to him, this is mysterious, this seems confusing to me, but I don't want to give up. I want to press in. That's part of what Jesus calls the hungering and thirsting. When you continue to pursue, he will continue to open your eyes and make clear what seemed confusing. And he's going to do that here for us in just a moment. Here's this the second confusing statement. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. You ever feel like God's actually messing with you? Like you're, you're, you're experiencing pain or loss? Sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a crisis or a struggle or an emotion that you can't even really describe. But God should know. He understands. But does he? And we read places like this, and it seems that way. Jesus knows, he, he intuitively, from the spirit within him and his relationship with the Father, he knows Lazarus has died. And the next thing out of his mouth is, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. And that, that can cause us to want to close the pages of Scripture. Or, you know, that's... that's Literal for some of us, and maybe it's a metaphor for, I'll, I'll get back to you later, God, when you make more sense. You're not making sense to me right now. But let's read on. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. 
Like, believe what? Believe something brand new that your mind and your heart has never been able to imagine. I want you to believe beyond just that I can perform signs that are impressive and that prove that I'm from God, that prove that I am God. I want to change the way you look at the broken world you live in and the movement that I've begun with my kingdom arriving on earth. This is what Jesus wants them to believe. But let us go to him. Let us go to Lazarus. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They, they sense the danger. They know there is opposition to Jesus. The religious leaders do not like his popularity. They do not like that so many are convinced that he is the Messiah. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers from her Jewish tradition, understanding the Old Testament. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What Martha's doing here is she's saying, yeah, I know that in the distant, faraway future, there will be a resurrection. This is what Martha's saying. Yes, I believe he'll rise again too someday, Jesus, in that last day, in the resurrection, meaning way into the cosmic future, hundreds of years or thousands of years from now. Let's continue in verse 25. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Even in death, even in crisis, even in circumstances that seem overwhelming, there is now access to life. Planet Earth has never experienced this before, Martha. I know you're having trouble comprehending this, but there is now the ability to have life where there's actually death, where it appears that something's been overwhelmed or overcome with loss or sadness. Even in that moment, there's life. And whoever, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love this exchange with Martha. Martha, if you engage with me, if you allow me in and allow me to lead, you will experience life even where there's death. When the job is missing or the job loss has, is overwhelming you or the relationship that has been lost just seems so crushing, when there's something that seems irreversible, irreversibly negative or harmful to you, Jesus has arrived to not only speak of God's beautiful kingdom and to prove that he is from God, he is now offering us life where there has been death. Martha, do you see what's happening? 
This is what he means when he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? It's interesting, if we go back up, we just read this in verse 15. Remember when Jesus said, he's telling the disciples, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. There's a lot in here about belief. Jesus keeps repeating this refrain. It's just this constant, so that you believe. Martha, do you believe? See, the disciples believed already that if Jesus had been there, he could have easily have healed Lazarus. They've seen it happen. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the signs that prove his power. He's not asking, do you believe if I was there before Lazarus died, I could have healed him? Everyone in this story would have said yes. We even see later unnamed citizens of, of Jerusalem who've come out to support the family. Even they question, if Jesus had been here, he could have just healed Lazarus. What no one believes, what no one on planet Earth believes, that is now being revealed the day before Jesus' entry on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, moving toward the cross, is that it is now possible to experience life where there has been death. It is now possible to go through the divorce and experience all the hurt and pain and God worked in your life so remarkably that life comes out of the pain and the brokenness. It is now possible on planet Earth, not because of our education, not because we have advanced as a human race to figure this out on our own, not because we've elected the right president, but because Jesus has now brought resurrection to planet Earth. That what's been lost, the one who's lost in loneliness, after betrayal, life can emerge out of what seemed like just utter death. Now, instead of seeing Jesus coming into this world to begin the regeneration process, to begin this renewal, redemptive process of all things being made new. Instead, here's what most of Jesus' followers believed. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is an ironic statement. It's a, it's a complex statement. It's a statement of faith. She's, she's expressing trust. If you had been here, we've seen what you can do. Time and time again, we've seen it. We've experienced it. So my trust is in the fact that if you had been here before it was too late, you could have undone this. But in saying you're too late, she's essentially blaming Jesus. What, what, are, you, what are you blaming God for? I'm tempted, you know, I've, I've said this, I said this in the fall, how I feel the way church gatherings like this have evolved for hundreds of years is, is not really the New Testament model. Um, that I stand here 
on stage and everybody else in the church sits quietly. Nobody's talking. Everybody sits facing one person who talks. It's really not a New Testament model. It's, it's not. The New Testament church looked so much more like sitting around dinner tables, eating, breaking bread, and sharing faith together. And an apostle would talk and teach. Um, the church looked a lot more like that than it does like sitting in auditoriums in rows. People are shoulder to shoulder, not facing one another, just facing one person. And in the fall, we experimented a little bit with conversation where I'd ask you a question. And then I'd wait, and then somebody would finally speak up, and we would actually do some dialogue a little bit on Sunday. Um, we'll do that again. I was tempted to ask, seriously, tell me, what are you blaming God for right now? That's an awkward question, and you may not have walked in here today thinking you're blaming God for anything, but are you? This is Mary we're talking about, Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' closest followers and friends She's blaming him. Are you blaming God for not fixing what's wrong? Or for not showing up? Or for being late? Do you blame God for allowing your pain? Or loss? Or for just not proving himself? I wrote... Uh, Coming into today, if he delays solving your problem or resolving your hurt, it's because he's using the current moment, the pain, something of the brokenness of this world. That's just part of our reality, the world that we live in. Failure, the loss to prepare your mind and condition your heart for what's coming to this planet, what has already come and has already begun, which is the reality of total and complete renewal. It sounds confusing to people. Uh, in our men's group on Monday night, I, I often will say, you know, we're moving back towards the Garden of Eden. We're moving back toward being the creative image of God in a perfect world. Jesus came ultimately to renew this broken world. Jesus came and he's introducing to us here the day before Easter week starts, before Holy Week starts, the day before Palm Sunday. The idea that remaking, the redemption, old being made new, is what he's brought to this, this world of ours. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they, they replied. Jesus wept. Shortest verse of the Bible. If you grew up in church, this was a trivia question. You know, it's almost sort of silly but this weeping, let's go back a verse. Verse 33, when he, when he saw Mary weeping and then saw the others weeping, this weeping in English and in our culture, we can say weeping. And it can, in some circumstances, refer to someone who's quietly weeping, like, like a quiet sob. You know, you can picture that. Tears streaming. Someone, maybe their hand is over their mouth and they're just, they're overcome, but it's, it's this quiet sort of holding it in. In, in the Greek language, in this description, this word weep, it inherently means loud. This is a loud wailing, overcome with so much grief and pain, they're just letting it all out, is what this Greek word means. So Mary weeps, Jesus sees the others around are also weeping, he was deeply moved, 
that they are moved. His close, dear friend has died. Where have you laid him? They take him to the tomb. Jesus wept. And yes, Jesus weeping, his I mean, it's a, isn't that an interesting picture of Jesus loudly grieving, weeping, sobbing in front of the tomb of his friend? And, and yes, it is clearly, the context tells us it's in part because of his relationship with Lazarus, and he's overcome with emotion. But it's also a precursor to the next day on Palm Sunday where Jesus would be arriving into Jerusalem and began weeping over the city, not recognizing who he is. He uses the word blind, that they are blind. If only they knew how to have true peace, how to truly be made alive, but the city doesn't, and they're going to crucify me. They're going to crucify the one who has power to make things dead, alive again. So much so, that would be his story. Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not, and here, here it is, here's that question again. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's so much faith in this group of people. Faith in Jesus as a miracle worker, as a signs performer, signs from God, performing these remarkable signs that prove, wow, he is the Son of God. He is God here in the flesh. No one, no human could have given that man his sight. No one could have caused that man who's been paralyzed, we've all known his whole life, to walk. But Lazarus is dead. He missed the window. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. <laughs> this is it, Easter's beginning. We have Easter neatly packaged, you know, beginning with Palm Sunday, Holy Week. It actually begins on Saturday. The people must have been like, what? In fact, we know one of the sisters is like, say what, Jesus? Take away the stone. See, that, that's imagery. You know, we, we celebrate Christmas and decorate our yards with Christmas lights, and then it's Easter, and we do Easter egg. And our culture, the Western world, understands what removing the stone means. They do not. This is a concept why would you take the stone away? Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, talk about morbid. She's speaking to the finality of you were too late. This is final. This is kind of gross to talk about. By this time, Jesus, there's a bad odor. For he's been in there four days. I mean, this is as raw as it gets. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, we're past the miracles now. We're past the signs that I'm from God. I now want you to believe what God can do. Not just that I'm from God. Not just that I am God in the flesh. You need to believe that. And everyone here believes that now. But what you ultimately need to believe is what God can ultimately do in a broken world. 
A world consumed with disease and political division and racism and awful, awful, horrid things like slavery. In this kind of world, God has arrived bringing alive things back from death. Making life out of dead things. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. That they may believe. Again, see how many times Jesus is focusing on this? This this is about our belief, not just that he's amazing. He's an amazing teacher. Wow, his love. It's a different kind of love. He is opening our eyes to believe the ultimate power of God. That not even death can stand in God's way. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus. Man, I would have loved to have been there. If I could teleport, there's so many scenes in the life of Jesus. Um, you know, people ask, if you could meet one person in history. And, you know, when I'm in a room and that question's asked, people always say, and Brad, you can't say Jesus. That's for some reason, that rule is applied to me. And you can't say Jesus. Well, I'm going to say Jesus. There's so many things I, wanna, I just would have loved to have witnessed or just stood in the corner mouth gaping open, just Jesus calling out in a loud voice. And if Jesus calls out in a loud voice, I mean, imagine what that must have been like. Lazarus, come out. The dead man comes out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I'm going to invite our band to come back. They're going to they're help us respond to this story here this morning. But hear me. Hear me. There's a few things happening here in this story that are so remarkable for you and me today in the 21st century, in the Western Hemisphere, with so many cultural differences. We could say so many crises of our own that this world wouldn't relate to. The first is that Jesus is clearly telling us that he's calling you and me to a different kind of future. Not a religious future where we're just impressed with somebody who spoke amazing wisdom. He is calling you and me into a different kind of future. That regardless of where you've come from, regardless of the hurts, regardless of what's been done to you, or maybe what you've done to others... He is calling you by name. It's interesting that he calls Lazarus' name at the tomb. We just think, well, that's a given. He calls us by name in the worst places, the places where maybe we would say we are most dead. And he says, I have a different kind of future for you. And Jesus will find you right where you are. Nothing is too scary for him. Nothing you've done, nothing you've said keeps him away. From meeting you right where you are. But I promise you, Jesus will not leave you the way he finds you. That's the story of Lazarus. He will not leave you in the condition or the perspective or paradigm 
He is going to turn your world upside down and lead you into a, a life and an experience in life that you never could have imagined. And he begins that by calling your name. Another, another idea from the story. And I, I, I remember referring to this last year um, in Easter week. Is that he will recreate life in you. Most likely, most likely he will recreate life in you different, differently than what you imagined or how it would play out. You think the relationship needs to mend by two weeks from now. Or you think the new job or the phone call needs to sound like this. Or you think the, the pay increase or the person who needs to forgive, they need to forgive, for, they need to apologize first. And God's timeline doesn't look like ours. The life that he's leading us toward, everyone in the story would have said, Jesus should have been here three days ago. He's recreating life in you. If you'll allow him, he's recreating. He's renewing, making new life in you. But it's just not going to play out always the way that we imagine or according to our timeline. And we need to be okay with that. And the, la the, the story of Lazarus tells us we need to be okay with it. And the last thing, third thing that is such a takeaway for me in the story is how it ends. It's this dramatic story and you can almost miss it. And for years I'd read the story and never pay any attention to this. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. We're just in awe like, what? This is, you know, that crowd must, what must they have done? Talk about party into the night. And yet, at the very end of the story, he walks out of the tomb, and the grave clothes are still wrapped around him, and Jesus needs to tell them, go unwrap him. Take the grave clothes off. Some of us have experienced the reality of Jesus. Some of us are being made new. We've chosen to follow him. We've given our lives to him. But there's still, we're still attached to the old, to the habit. We're still attached to that dead thing. And Jesus wants us to be totally free. I mean, when we come out of the tomb, you'd think, I used, the coming out of the tomb used to be enough for me. Like Lazarus came out of the tomb and I would just not finish the story or not pay attention to, but Jesus wants all the death off of us. He wants to make us so alive, his way and his timing. And this whole story is Jesus' own personal entrance toward his tomb. That's what's mind-boggling about this. I, I could spend weeks on this story. The emotion of weeping in front of the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus knows full well what's awaiting him five days, six days from now. He'll be in his own tomb, taking our death. Our, and they can't comprehend it. Peter argues with him at the Last Supper. This is not right. Jesus, you're our Lord. You're, you didn't come to serve us. And Jesus is like, Peter, if you don't understand that I came to serve you, you'll never be able to follow me. This is so radically different. The pathway to life, the pathway to freedom, freedom from your anxieties, freedom from the deepest fear, freedom from the regrets that you carry, the guilt that we want. We actually fight 
for our guilt to define us. We do this subconsciously. Jesus wants you completely free, completely alive, so much so that there's no semblance of death still holding on to us. So before our band <clears throat> leads us here in this final song, I want to just offer you two, two prayers. I wrote them this week. One is a prayer this week. I'm going to ask you to pray these and, and screenshot this, the screen here in just a moment, or um, I'll email these out early in the week to you also. I want us to pray every day for an internal resurrection. Okay, and I'm going to, I'm going to read this prayer. And I'm just offering this as part of our closing prayer here as I read this. Jesus, I'm asking you to pray this prayer every day this week, in Holy Week. Jesus, open my heart more this week to you as the source of life, the creator and the recreator of dead, lost, broken things. Show me this week what you are working to make alive in me. Will you join me this week in praying this? This is where you say yes, yeah, yes, yes, Brad. Yeah, Brad, we will. I think, no, I was going to joke about maybe some are dead here this morning. And, <laughs> but I won't make that joke. Okay, the second prayer is an external resurrection. This is about external resurrection. Jesus, may I be a reflection of you in my world, in my neighborhood, in my conversations and relationships, fill me with passion to love my neighbor. Fill me with passion to be part of your plan to renew our world. This week, begin to use me to make part of this world new. Will you pray this with me this week?